Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. People who exercise a lot, and there are people who do this. You may not be one, that's okay. But there are people who exercise a lot, and sometimes are involved in different competition when it comes to exercising. And these people, over time, begin to really understand their bodies. And they know, at times, when they need to rest their bodies. Their bodies are wore out. They're getting beat up, and it's time to rest. There are times they know it's time to push their bodies hard and don't let their mind slow up their bodies. they got to use their mind to push their bodies beyond what their bodies, in some sense, think that they can do. But if you push hard when you should rest, you'll get injured. You'll harm your body. You didn't rest when you should. But if you do it the other way around, if you rest when you should push hard, guess what? You're not going anywhere. You're not moving. You're not progressing forward. One of the very careful tensions in the Bible is related to this. <clears throat> we, can turn, we can make it in terms of resting and working. We see that in creation, don't we? We in the image of God. We're looking at this on Sunday nights. Image of God, we are people who work. We're also people who need to rest. A key balance for us in how we function as human beings. And some people don't want to handle that rightly. Some people are too lazy, don't want to work. And some people refuse to rest. You're going to hurt yourself. Same thing in redemption. There is a resting in our salvation. There's also a working. So in the Bible, it talks about resting in the Lord. Stop your labor. Trust in the Lord. Uh, receive from the Lord. There is a blessing for those who do not work. I mean, a lot of different ways of putting it. But on the other hand, the scriptures say, do. Get busy. Work. Put your hand to the plow. Seek. Watch. Imitate. I mean, all these other words we can associate with doing. So periods of resting and there are periods of activity. And you have to know when and how and why. Beatitudes here. For first three are really about resting, aren't they? Poor in spirit, mourn, and the meek. So we about sitting back and kind of vowing yourself to the Lord and making sure that you're right with the Lord. It's not about a lot of activity. But oh boy, do we got activity now. In verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now it's a time to move and to get busy and to be energetic. And this movement here is not anti-gospel. Back in chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus says that he has come to preach and announce the good news of the kingdom. And the Beatitudes are part of the good news of the kingdom. So that means, first of all, we stop and do nothing. 
We are poor in spirit. We've got nothing to offer. Lord, we need what only you can give to us. But also the gospel makes one energetic and full of action. And actually it's the rest that creates the energy of the second. Right? We rest in life, right? So we can be energetic. Christ has come that we might rest in him and then we go to work in Christ for the rest that he gives to us. The kingdom heaven. First priority of the kingdom heaven here is righteousness. Step back and ask the question, is there righteousness in the world? Yes, there is some. Definitely. People in the world can do some righteousness. We don't want to say that we have the corner in all righteousness. But for the world, most of the time, righteousness is, I like the word, expedient. When it's useful in the situation, it can help you out then you lay hold of righteousness. Oh, election's coming up. I better make sure I really watch over myself as a candidate to make sure I'm seen as righteous and not do anything wrong, right? Or if I'm going to keep my job, or if I'm going to stay out of jail, if I'm going to fix my marriage, if I'm going to make money, if I'm going to be seen as respectable in my community and people know me, you better do a certain level of righteousness, right? Because if you don't have that righteousness, you are not going to do well in society. You're not going to do well in your family. But the problem is that righteousness is a side issue. You use it for your own self. And it's superficial and selfish and putrid and ugly because you are the end of your so-called righteousness. Our goal as Christians is righteousness. That is our pursuit. Now, our world does pursue things, and its goal, number one, is to pursue happiness. And again, people use righteousness for that end, to be self-fulfilled and to be happy. And so people today will pay lots of money to be happy. They will sacrifice greatly. They are full of anxiety. Even as they sometimes sit in church pews, they're full of anxiety because they're trying to be happy. And happiness has one big banner over it in this world. It says this, just around the corner. Just around the next corner. But it ends up being an endless maze of corners. People are pursuing happiness for happiness' sake. That's their number one goal. And they do, will do what is necessary, either be unrighteous or they might even be righteous if somehow that can help, help them get their goal of being happy. They will spend money they don't even have. They will hurt their family or they will idolize their family. They will do poorly at a job, or they will excel at their job. They will shirk responsibility. They will cut moral corners just to be happy. God did make us to be happy and blessed, right? We saw this a few weeks ago. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, 
We have the blessed God who wants to bring us into his blessedness, and the Beatitudes are that. We're getting the blessing of the blessed God who makes us happy. But you don't get this apart from righteousness. That's why happiness can't be your number one goal. Unless you hunger and thirst in your soul for righteousness, you are probably just on a maze trying to be happy, trying to get that victory flag that you can never fully see. But that is not the end. The end of that pursuit is destruction, and there are many who find it. Our goal is righteousness, but not even for righteousness' sake, because as we're going to see here at the end, God is our goal. But where God dwells, he dwells in righteousness, doesn't he? You can't have God apart from righteousness. We will be satisfied. It promises here that we'll be satisfied when we have God as our satisfaction. God's our satisfaction when we are satisfied in the righteousness of God. So today, let's look at what this righteousness is and what it is not. And we'll talk about how to pursue this righteousness. And then again, what is this blessing of being satisfied? Very important though, first of all, we discern what this righteousness is all about. So what is it? First of all, it is a righteousness by justification of faith. Justification of faith. This great doctrine we find in different places in the scripture where God justifies us by grace through faith. This, listen carefully here, is not the primary point of righteousness right here. It's not the primary point. You might be saying, well, why are you talking about it then? <laughs> because this righteousness where God gives to us through Christ is always in the picture. Whenever we talk about righteousness, whatever that means, we have to make sure we understand that it begins and is primarily about God's righteousness being given to us because of Christ. And we know this already because of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn. Why be poor in spirit? Why go about mourning? Because we know that we are not right with God. We are separated and alienated from him. And any judgments he gives to us in this life or possibly beyond this life would be just if he gave those punishments to us. We are condemned and judged rightly. God alone is righteous. God alone is the righteous judge. And we are unrighteous. We are poor in righteousness. And to be made right with God, it will take God doing the work. It will take him doing the righteousnessing. He will have to do that. No amount of work, no amount of activity, no amount of so-called goodness will ever be enough to please God. And if we attempt in one way or another to use so-called righteousness of ours to please God, to cancel our debts of sin, God treats those acts of our so-called righteousness and goodness as wickedness, ungodliness. This is the gospel here, y'all. When people try and do very good things in society, 
or in churches, but it's not about Christ's righteousness, it's about their righteousness, and they're trying to say, God, this should be enough. God is grossly offended. And now he counts those great works which are praised by governors and presidents and everything else. He counts them as wickedness. And they go into our account as losses and sins. Jesus is our suffering servant. And according to Isaiah 53, verse 11, this suffering servant will know and experience in the cross suffering and will bring about a righteousness for those who put their trust in him. As it says there, he will make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. This is resting. This is receiving. This is trusting. No activity here. Just palms up and say, I have nothing. Imagine you owed me a million dollars. I don't know why you owe me a million dollars, but just imagine you would. And you say, you know what? I can't pay you. I can't pay you. But what I'm willing to do for you to take care of this debt is I'm willing to come over for an hour next Saturday morning and mow your lawn for you. You get the point. So it's not that that's the primary focus here, but obviously we've got to have that. But the righteousness here, second of all, is a righteousness by life of faith. A righteousness by life of faith. Obviously here, by hungering and thirsting imagery here, it is something that we are pursuing. There is activity. We can't pursue the righteousness of Christ. That has to be given to us. But there's another kind of righteousness that we must have. We're not talking about earning this righteousness or using it as to merit favor from God. But a life of righteousness is what follows and is expected and is necessary for the one who has received the righteousness of God. Righteousness has many different meanings in the Bible. Very, very common word. It would take us a long time this morning to talk about all different kind of meanings of righteousness. 264 times in the Bible, we have the noun righteousness. 188 of those are in the Old Testament. Very key theme. And very key theme in actually the book of Isaiah. You ever heard any sermons on the book of Isaiah before? Listen to a couple instances, which you've already heard before in the last year or so. Isaiah 5, verse 7. Remember Isaiah 5? Lord says, I'm going to build this wonderful vineyard. It's going to be so fruitful. And all the other nations are going to say this wonderful vineyard and say, wow, what a beautiful vineyard. So God does everything possible to create this beautiful vineyard. And then he shows the vineyard and he comes there looking for righteousness in the vineyard, right? What's he find? Bloodshed. Outcry. Injustice. People taking advantage of one another people not caring for God and his righteousness at all. Isaiah chapter 9, again, back in Matthew chapter 4, uh, Matthew alludes to these verses here. Not these specific verses I'm going to give to you, but he alludes to the context of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 talks about this promise that the government is going to rest upon this one to come that we know is Jesus, right? He's going to shoulder the government of God. And what is this government going to be like when this Jesus person shows up? 
but he will establish the government and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Anybody associated with the kingdom of Jesus will have to pursue righteousness because he upholds the kingdom with righteousness. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, again, this Messiah figure is going to come that we know as Jesus. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Jesus is the one who loves righteousness. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 15, uh, Jesus tells John, you've got to baptize me. You must baptize me in order to fulfill all righteousness. John, this is absolutely necessary, and I want to please my Father. I want to do righteousness. So righteousness is this. It is doing the will of God as revealed in the Word of God. It is what God wants us to do, what He wills us to do, and what is right for us to do. So we are to do the right thing by His will because it is the right thing by Him. He is righteousness. The problem sometimes for us is that when we think about this righteousness, we kind of think in vague terms. So I'm going to ask you, do you do righteousness? Might be a little hesitant to say that you do, right? But I think in, in probably most of our nine minds, we'd think, yeah, I, I kind of pursue righteousness. And righteousness becomes this kind of vague thing out in the corner here a little bit. So what Jesus does for us is he puts some really sharp corners on righteousness. He does that in chapters 5 through 7 called the Sermon on the Mount. Let me give you some of the things that Jesus talks about, and we'll see as we go through the uh, Gospel of Matthew here. What is pursuing hunger and thirsting for righteousness look like? It looks like dealing with your anger. Being angry so easily at other people, flipping out on them, having bitterness in your heart. Can't have that. It means you're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It means dealing with your lust, sexually lusting after other people. That's not this righteousness. It deals with marriage and divorce. That's what Jesus says. You have to love your spouse, sacrifice your spouse, and, you, and you, you don't cheat on your spouse. It's about righteousness. It's about your oaths that you take. You give your word, you keep your word. Don't be fuzzy. Don't be kind of saying, well, I'm not sure if I really said that or not. No, you said it. You said it. Do it. So not taking retaliation against people, getting back at people, silent treatments getting them back other ways. How you treat your enemies. Not getting back at them, but loving them, blessing them, praying for them. You have such a big love in your heart because of God's love for you. It deals with your religious activities, your giving, your prayer, and your fasting. It deals where your treasures are at. Are they on earth? You're only concerned about your checkbook and what you're buying your checkbook for yourself? Or are you concerned about others? You're concerned about God's work in the kingdom, what the church is doing. Be full of anxiety about the normal affairs of life like everybody else. Oh, I don't know. I'm so worried. I can't, I can't even sleep. I can't think about this anymore. I'm so overrun by it. He's saying, God, you are so gracious and so powerful. You are ordering the, the affairs of my life so beautifully. I don't have to worry about this stuff. You judge others for their lack of righteousness 
Or do you judge yourself more harshly than the way you judge others? It's easy again for this to be quite vague. As I've said many times before, Jesus really makes you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> he makes me feel very, very uncomfortable. Sometimes I'm not always sure I want Jesus to be in the room. Don't you feel that way? I'm scared what he might say. I'm trying to welcome him. I'm trying to brace him, but <laughs> you never know what he's going to say. Matthew 5, verse 48, as Jesus ends up this section of Matthew 5, talking about how Jesus now, in some sense, through his teaching, fulfills the Old Testament law given through Moses, and now you understand Moses and the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments through him, he concludes this section by saying words that uh, hmm, make me very uncomfortable. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Don't sideswipe that one. Don't say, well, I mean, Jesus is my righteousness. That's all I need, right? To get into heaven, that's it. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus also says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those who accept Jesus as righteousness will get into heaven, and those who do the will of the Father will be in heaven. This righteousness that we're talking about here this morning is not like a little extra thing, you know, we say the prayer, we get saved, we're in heaven, and this righteousness thing, well, some people get literally hyped up about it. They probably get up a little too hyped maybe because everybody's going to make it to just say the sinner's prayer. That's all it takes. Don't get too uptight about this righteousness thing. No, you must hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is this righteousness not? We're going to do this very, very quickly. What is it not? It's not simple morality. For a lot of people, sometimes righteousness is just simply the Ten Commandments. Make sure you post them in schools. Make sure you post them in church. And as long as you pretty much do okay with those Ten Commandments, you're good to go. You are righteous. Righteousness is a whole lot bigger than that. Don't reduce it to just a few laws, even though they're Ten Commandments. Number two, to be a good citizen. Sometimes being an American, you know, kind of doing what you need to do, work hard, take care of your family, show up at church once in a while, throw some money in the basket. Hey, you're a good Christian. You're a good American. They kind of get put together. Thirdly, it's not simply avoiding. For some people, righteousness is basically trying to stay at zero. You don't want to lose your grip on zero, but you're not pursuing after righteousness. You just don't want to go backwards. And this is where the tendency is for legalism to come into play. I'm going to add more laws so I don't lose what I got. But I don't want to pursue righteousness. I'm going to focus simply on what I should not do. So you got do's and your don'ts, and you mostly focus on the don'ts. 
you shouldn't go to that movie. You shouldn't be drinking alcohol. You shouldn't be doing that. And that becomes righteousness. Fourthly, simply doing religious practices. Jesus will address this in Matthew 6. Giving and prayer and fasting. And for some, like the Pharisees and some others, they will look at these religious activities and say, because I do these, and the way that I do them, and the consistency of how I do them, therefore, I have righteousness. Not true. We, in some sense, don't create righteousness in and of ourselves by doing those activities. They don't create righteousness but they become the basis from which we practice our righteousness. They're important, but they're not our righteousness alone. So how do I seek after righteousness? Three ways here, three ways. First of all, it's a passionate pursuit of all of our being. A passionate pursuit of all of our being. In the Psalms, quite often, I'm thinking especially of Psalm 42 and Psalm 63, it talks about panting after God, thirsting for God. Your whole being wants God so very much that he is worthy of your greatest thirst, your greatest desire, how you must have God, even when you're in a dry and weary land. So now Jesus talks here about hungering and thirsting. Very difficult for us to really understand what Jesus here is talking about, okay? Why? Because most of us don't get hungry and thirsty. You say, well, yes, I do. About 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm like, oh, man, I'm getting hungry. i got to have a snack. That's not hunger. That's not hunger. And most time when we have a meal, i.e. here in 35, 45 minutes, we're going to eat probably our fill, aren't we? We're going to say, I can't eat anymore. I am so full. But then you do the same thing at supper time. In the first century, unless you were a king or something like that, you never got a chance to eat to the fill. You were never satisfied. There was never enough food for you and your family to be full. You always went away feeling hungry. I don't think anybody here has that experience. Can you imagine that? We, it's hard for us to imagine as Americans, right? We eat all that we want. We go to buffets. We go overboard. Back in the first century, no way. So this image here is when you're really hungry and you're really thirsty, you know you need food. You need water for your existence. This is how you survive. This is how we survive, right? By food and water. Jesus could have said, you know, you should as a Christian want and seek righteousness? But he said, no, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus again showed that, didn't he? Again, Matthew 3.15, fulfill all righteousness. And then what does Jesus do? He goes in the wilderness and he starves himself for 40 days. Jesus was testing his own heart. Is righteousness what I really want? Is that essential to who I am? Jesus could afford not to eat and drink, but he could never afford not to have righteousness. 
That was never a question. He would forsake all kinds of things, everything if necessary, even his own life, because he wanted righteousness. These are bodily cravings. Today we talk much more about psychological cravings. Most people will talk about that today. Because why? Well, most of our physical cravings are filled up, right? <laughs> We're always satisfied. And so now people are more focused on the psychological cravings, i.e., the emphasis today is, I just want to feel good about myself. I want to feel good about life. I want to feel good about my past. I want to feel good about the future. And I need some therapies, all different kinds of therapies to help me feel better psychologically so I can feel as though I'm having a better life. And there's such a push in our culture today to be so psychologically satisfied and happy. We only got that way because we are so full physically. You didn't hear people talking about the way we talk about ourselves today 60 years ago. They didn't talk that way. Psychological happiness and feeling good about yourself? <laughs> we just got to make enough to get on food on the table. I'm trying to take care of my family. I'm going to go to work every day. What do you mean the psychological stuff? Thirsting and hunger. This leads your body into pursuits to pursue these cravings. You've got to have righteousness, just like you've got to have food and water. To have the kingdom of heaven, to enjoy its promises and its blessings, your overarching goal and dream and pursuit in life is righteousness. You have no sleep. You have no peace. You have no joy. And you have no comfort until you have righteousness. Do people hear you talk like that? They know that's how you think and how you act. You want righteousness more than you need psychological happiness and comfort? You've got to have the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. It is your pursuit. It is like hungering and thirsting. You cannot be denied. And when you fail, you mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And you get up and you pursue righteousness again. And when your family fails and when some of your family falls, you mourn for them. You, you cry out for their lack of righteousness. You plead with God that they also would pursue righteousness. You're not happy in some sense in the kingdom of heaven unless others are also pursuing righteousness. I wish you could have been on the phone with me a few weeks ago. I had a great conversation with a man from I knew about 12 years ago. He was telling me, you probably wouldn't guess this, but I'm an elder in my church now. And I went, what? Yeah, I'm an elder. I said, you probably, if you talk to me, you probably wouldn't recognize it's me. Things really changed for me. And we started talking about his kids. And his older son had gotten in a lot of trouble. I knew that from before, and I was just wondering how he was doing. And the very first thing this man talks about is the spiritual condition of his boys. 
know, the one that's been in trouble a lot has a really good job. He's doing well for himself. But this man did not brag about how well his son was doing in his job. The thing he wanted me to know more than anything else is, my son is not with the Lord. And after we had a conversation, we talked about that. At the very end, he goes, oh, just so you know, he does have a good job. Is that how you think about life? How you're doing, how your kids are doing, how your mom and dad are doing? You think first in terms of kingdom heaven, righteousness, where they're at, or is it only earthly plane? They're doing well earthly. They got a nice family. They're making lots of money. They're going to a good college. Most of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, just not for yourself. You want for your family. You want for your church. You want for the world. Second of all, we get it by using godly means. Godly means. I really wish I could tell you this morning that this is going to be a very easy thing. If it were made into a movie, it might look kind of easy. This is not a movie. It's about real life, isn't it? And just warning you, like Jesus does many times here, that if you pursue righteousness like this, you are going to suffer loss. There are people in your family who will not understand you and do not understand why you're making decisions as you're doing. People at your job may make fun of you. You could lose a job. You may suffer economic loss, whatever. This can happen to you because this is not easy because the world we live in does not value a pursuit of righteousness. When it's expedient, they say, good job. But when it's against them and what they want you to do, oh boy, hang on. <laughs> Here they come. So we've got to have godly means, don't we? We need the word of God to strengthen us, to renew us, restore us, not just instruct us, but strengthen us. We need that on a daily basis like food. We need prayer, praying at all times in the spirit, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6. We need body life. We need a consistency with God's people corporately, getting under God's word, singing with God's people. Singing is a really cool thing, isn't it? We're all singing the same songs together, the very song, same time. 30, 40, 50 of us, and we're all doing it together because we are one. And we treat one another with love and kindness. We're caring about one another. We need to buy life because we're in a world that does not value righteousness, but we do. And we say, keep going. I know it's hard in your family and people don't approve of you, but you keep going. You keep going on being faithful to the Lord. And then you leave, you get strength, and you come back again the next time. We need the ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper's next week. We need fasting. We need these things. Romans 12, verse 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. I laughed this week. I found an article by a Loyola University professor who says there really is no such thing as laziness. Laziness. You know what laziness is, right? No, you don't. Because this professor is saying there's no such thing as laziness. It doesn't even exist. We've made it up. Humanity has made up this concept of laziness 
so that we would put shame and dishonor on people as a way to motivate them. But there really isn't anything called laziness. I'm scratching my head going, what? They're just saying that there are barriers in people's way and they can't move on because they're barriers. And if we get in the way and help remove the barriers, then we wouldn't see them as lazy anymore. I'm going, yeah, there's something about those barriers there, isn't there? Because there are barriers in life that we're supposed to go through. And we learn in our maturity as we grow up to have to work through barriers. Same thing spiritually. God lays out the barriers. And sometimes there are temptations there from Satan. And God says, what are you going to do? You're going to quit? You're going to fold up? Lay down? Or by God's grace, are you going to push through? Using godly means. Lastly, guarding against other pursuits. Other pursuits. It would have been fun to kind of be with Jesus for lots of different reasons, but Jesus obviously could really see people and read people very, very well, couldn't he? You just wonder all the time what was going through his mind as he was in the marketplace watching people, talking about these things and then watching people. Because eventually, people's hearts are seen outwardly. And you see where their hearts are at. You see what is written on their hearts. It comes out. And Jesus could read hearts. And so can we a little bit, can't we? We can see what is important to people. What are they hungering and thirsting for? As we talked about last Wednesday night being gospel-saturated, our desires can only handle so many things. That's where we're torn so many times, right? We have all these different options. Where are we going to go for lunch today? Well, there's not like one place. There's lots of them. You want to go outside of town, other cities? You get all kinds of choice. There's so many things for your desires to find fulfillment. But your desires can't be fulfilled in every way, right? It is absolutely impossible to satisfy all your desires. And Jesus certainly knew that. Matthew 6, 24. You can't serve God and mammon and money at the same time. Your desires can't handle it. We try to, right? We try and love God, and we try and love all these other pursuits at the exact same time and say, it's going to work out. God is going to understand. Even though I want all these other things, I got God over here just to kind of confirm that everything is okay. If we don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, we have to ask, what are we hungering and thirsting for? What are those things that are not only robbing God that are due him from us, but are things that are robbing us? So why seek after this righteousness? Well, passages I mentioned earlier in the Psalm, Psalm 42, Psalm 63, talk about thirsting after God. They don't talk about righteousness. But again, the point is here that when we seek after righteousness, we're actually seeking after God. And so the promise here in Matthew 5, 6 is that we will be satisfied. There will be some satisfaction in righteousness, but ultimately we know that our satisfaction ultimately is in God. Psalm 107, 8 through 9. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. The soul that God made you to have is only filled with him. 
You cannot put a square into a circle or a circle into a square. Your soul has been sized by God for God. The arrogance of humanity is to seek something else that will satisfy or to add God in as a seasoning salt just to make sure he's somewhat near. This is the danger with God for we who are religious. That we add God into our life. We have our list, we have our desires, we have our goals, and we need to make sure that God's on that list somewhere. God is not to be an item on your list. He consumes every aspect of your list and your life. God is the center. He is the essence of all things. You seek righteousness and you'll be satisfied by him. That's his promise. That's the blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have a great example of righteousness in your son. He has displayed perfect righteousness. And now we know what it's like to pursue righteousness. We recognize, Lord, that you have made us to be recreated in the image of Jesus. And so we need to live the life of Jesus over and over again. And so really, in some sense, our lives are not going to be much different than the life of Jesus. We won't have a cross for atonement purposes, probably, as far as dying. But Lord, we will have to make choices that are going to be very, very difficult. But Lord, we have to see that you alone satisfy our souls and that you are worth that righteousness. I pray for us as we contemplate and think about these things, not just now, but also through the afternoon and through tonight and this week. Lord, that you'll cause us to remember, Lord, what this means for us. Places in our lives that we are ignoring righteousness and we're cutting off corners of righteousness and still yet calling it righteousness. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we will be driven, energetic by your Holy Spirit to have these things, not in an egotistical, proud, arrogant way, but in a way that would be fitting those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, and those who are meek. Well, we just can't put this whole puzzle together, Lord, but you can. Teach us one piece at a time, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.